we are starting now. Now we're starting. All right. Okay, so welcome back to SPIN. We took a break for Autism Acceptance Month because Mary needed to accept her autism <laughs> when it came to figuring out how the fuck to get this hosting situation to work. But now that it's all figured out, uh, hosting should resume as normal, I guess. So I'm Mary. I'm Charlie. My name is Amias. I'm eating pizza, sorry. Charlie, do you want to explain Amias to everyone? <laughs> Amias is my husband. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, we haven't been married yet. Amias is my fiance and he lives here now. Yeah, we stole him from Cat. He him. Yeah, we stole, yeah. we stole him from Cat. I've kidnapped him from Utah he, and he's mine yep. now. <laughs> okay, yep. So. Oh, I guess I cameoed in Cat's episode, didn't I? Um, yeah, sort of. Yeah, but we cut that bit out because oh. you were just there to help set stuff yeah, up. Yeah, I was. But yeah, Amias and Kat used to be roommates, so now they're not anymore. Kat, I, I have you should come much. visit us sometime. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> come talk to me about elves some more. I have heard much talk about elves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you. you. And rocks. Oh you should get Kat on to talk about rocks with Oh my you. god, I should. I want to talk to Kat about rocks. I want to talk about silicates. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, Okay, well. so we don't really have... Like a specific topic this week. Our topic for today is pretentious shit. Pretentious shit. <laughs> yeah. Oh shit. Where's my phone? It's all the way over there. I have to go get my phone. Hold on. For notes. Um, well, cause I, cause you guys were like, okay, what were you guys gonna make your pretentious shit be? Color theory. <laughs> and you wanted to talk about typewriters yeah. and and the writing process because actually just listening to me talk about the intricacies of how typewriters work would probably not be that interesting. Yeah. I mean, you can if you want. That's sort of the autistic that's, experience. That, yeah, it just wouldn't be interesting conversation to involve the two of you in. Okay, but like the thing is, even if it's not interesting conversation, I will cut it down to only the very humorous bits in post-production. <laughs> that's very... So, that's fair. <laughs> that's so, the magic of editing, maybe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, Charlie read a tweet to me yesterday that was about, like, what was it? It was like, The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe fucking slaps. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we were arguing about what is the definition of a poem that slaps. Oh, no. I I think, I think that the only poems that can be described as, like, they slap are Edgar Allan Poe because they are the only ones that have the strongest beat and, like, rhythm and rhyming pattern that when you read them aloud, they do sound good. And I, on the other hand, am a giant poetry nerd, and I have a list of poems that I have that are my favorite poems just for rhythm reasons. So I'm I have sorry, I don't poems. think a poem can slap. I'm sorry, but I don't fuck think, you. Okay, I don't think anything <laughs> except a slam poem can slap. Continue. Slam poetry is very culturally important to a lot of people, and I have no desire to diss it, but I have never heard a slam poem that I was like, yeah, man. I've never heard a slam poem, actually. I like like 19th century romantic poetry. I am a Byron ho. Yeah, you're a dweeb. Yeah. (laughs) I like slam poetry more than most poetry. Anyway, I I like poetry that's written for performance. That's totally valid. I, okay, my favorite, my actual favorite poem is actually, not, okay, my actual favorite poet is, was Edgar Allan Poe for a long, long, long time. I remember I was, I think probably 12, 
and I was homesick from school, and I was, like, extremely feverish. Like, I couldn't get up from the couch. And so I was just like, well, I need a book that will occupy me for the entire day while I'm here. And at that point in my life, I could read, like, a 400-page book in three hours. Oh, no. So, so I just oh, went no. to the bookshelf, oh. and I got the biggest... That's probably an exaggeration. But 400 I, pages of Edgar Allan Poe? No, I, no, of regular books. Mary read, read really, really fast, fast when she was as a, kid. a child. But, like, so I went to the bookshelf, and I got the biggest book I could find off there, which was the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe, which I still have, and my dad nags me all the time. He's like, you stole my Poe book. That was mine. I got that when I was in med school. And I was like, well, it's mine now, bitch. <laughs> 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 but, oh my god, it's know, mine now, bitch. <laughs> I know there are lots of people who know Poe primarily because of his short stories, like The Pit and the Pendulum, which everyone and their mother has to read in high school at some point, and The Telltale Heart. Which... Hold up, is he the one that wrote that story about um, locking, giving someone wine and then bricking them up yeah, behind a wall? Yeah, the Castle of ah, And everyone knows good. that right now because it's, it was a meme on Tumblr a couple years ago. <laughs> It's but, also just a really good one that they talked about in my writing class. I know the Telltale Heart. I think that was the first Poe thing that That's I read. That's the killing a guy and burying him under the floorboards? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. And what one was the Pit and the Pendulum? The Pit and the Pendulum is um, during the Spanish Inquisition, a guy was being tortured by... Um, he was dropped down a long, dark pit, and then there was a pendulum that was swinging over him and coming closer and closer and, and as it got closer he realized that it was sharp on the edge the axe. so it was going to cut him and yeah mm-hmm. so like those are like i feel like those are the big 3 post stories that people know yeah. and like but like at that point when i first got into poe i was way more into him for his poetry where did i put this fucking yeah. list of poems i used to have the entirety of annabelle lee memorized like i could That's recite a that good back poem. That was my first favorite poem, actually. Yeah, that one does have pretty good rhythm. Try and recite that right now. No, I don't remember any of it anymore. Okay. I just remember that it had a word that I couldn't pronounce at the time, which I now think is pronounced sepulcher? Sepulcher. Yeah. Okay, sure. Something like it's, that. It's a type of grave, I think. Is that the same one? Yeah, yeah, that's like, okay, a sepulcher, or however you say that word. A sepulcher is a fixture in a tomb. Uh, it's like the slab that goes on top of the actual yeah. oh, neat. Yeah. casket area. I like graves. But, um, <laughs> Not to be a huge emo, yeah. but I like dead things. Yeah. So what I want to do is I want to read some little bits of poetry that... I'm not going to read the entire poem. Poems that slap but, with okay. Mary. Okay. This is our new but, segment. Right, that's how we got <laughs> Poems, poems that, that slap laugh. with Mary because there are so many poems that I love. <laughs> I think segments could and be. And I would good love format. to try. Okay, well, if Mary gets a segment, then I get to have my own segment too, but I gotta come up with a good name for okay, it. Okay, but anyway, okay. Poems that slap with Mary. Here's how I think we're gonna do this because I don't wanna just read poetry straight for the next 20 minutes. So, over the rest of this episode, every once in a while, I'm gonna interject to be like, here's another poem that slaps. not look up Annabelle Lee, but my favorite um, Poe, my favorite poem oh. by Poe right now, actually, at this point in my life, um, is 
a selection from El Ararat? I'm never sure how to say that. It's a poem. But, um, <laughs> I hate you. I made, okay, so I got as into Poe as I am now and like kind of expanded beyond just being like, oh yeah, Annabelle Lee and the Raven are the good shit and like learned more of his poems because I was in forensics in high school and my first ever forensics meet, I was like super nervous and I was standing there with um, with the other people waiting to go into the room and they were like, what are you reading? And I was like, Poe. And they were like, what? And I was like, Poe, Edgar Allan Poe. And they were like, oh, I thought you were trying to like make a hip new slang version of the word poem. And I was like, fuck off. Oh my God. Okay, also, poem. hold up, hold up. <laughs> for, for people who don't know what the fuck forensics is, no, Mary was not in a club that like dissects bodies or whatever. Forensics Club was a club that did uh, public speaking competitions. How does that relate at all? Yeah, I don't know. Oh, Everyone was very know confused that, about I that used to name. Know that. Um, hold on one second. It's because the word forensics comes from the word forum from the Romans, and they did public speaking oh in the forum. No, that's oh, yeah, exactly right. the amount of pretentious I you're would right. expect. You're right. Yeah. Latin is good, actually, I no. think. Okay, but anyway. <laughs> I mean, it is pretentious, yes, but that's the entire point of this but episode. But anyway, my first ever forensics meet. Yes. The yes. poems that I did were, I did A Dream Within a Dream. I did all Poe. I did A Dream Within a Dream, and then I did a selection from El Erorah and for Annie, and I'm going to read bits of those now. Um, here's El Erorah. Neath bluebell or streamer or tufted wild spray that keeps from the dreamer the moonbeam away. Bright beings that ponder with half-closing eyes on the stars which your wonder hath drawn from the skies, till they glance through the shade and come down to you now, and come down to your brow, like eyes of the maiden who calls on you now, arise from your dreaming in violet bowers to duty beseeming these star-litten hours, and shake from your tresses encumbered with dew the breath of those kisses that cumber them too. Oh, how, without you, love, could angels be blessed, those kisses of true love that lulled ye to rest. Up, shake from your wing all hindering things. The dew of the night, it will weigh down your flight. And true love caresses, oh, leave them apart. They are light on the tresses, but lead on the heart. Dang, that Poe is good at rhyming. Do yeah. You, that's like the thing that I like about Poe. But see, when you say poems that slap, what I envision when you say something slaps is not reading Poe uh, po at like the slow pace that Poe demands, but rapping it at a real fast oh, Hamilton you, pace. You want, you want me to try and rap? No, I don't. For no, Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If you do this, I will murder you. Okay, but... Okay, you can try. It'll be some good God, stuff please, no. Amaya, you're going to kill me from secondhand embarrassment. <laughs> I don't know how to rap, and I want to... To try, but I am gonna read this extremely fast. Here's a bit of for Annie. The moaning and groaning, the sighing and sobbing, are quieted now with that horrible throbbing at heart. Ah, that horrible, horrible throbbing. The sickness, the nausea, the pitiless pain have ceased with the fever that maddened my brain. The fever called living that burned in my brain. And oh, of all tortures, that torture the worst has abated the terrible torture of thirst. For the naphthalene river of passion accursed, I have drank of a water that quenches all thirst. Okay, no, you know, actually. Dramatic. <laughs> Do you want to know, honestly? I mean, I didn't process any of those words, but it sounds I good. I fucking love to read Poe at this speed, and it's only because of forensics and the fact 
that my teacher was like, you have to learn to slow down. Poetry is meant to be savored. It's meant to go slow enough that you can understand what you're saying. But like, that is the speed at which I want to read all poems that rhyme. Yeah. But I don't because I am not classy classy, but like, kind of classy. You <laughs> have some notions about being classy, yes. perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, this really is the pretentious episode, huh? Yes, it is. Listen, we're all pretentious. We know We those. are. <laughs> Okay, who wants to talk about something else now? I mean, I say I'm pretentious, but I did all, just barely finish a glass of what was essentially two fucking ounces, two shots of whiskey, and margarita mix. You didn't put I mean, the tequila yeah. in, you put whiskey in instead? I had tequila in the first one. I don't like tequila very much, I found out. I like I whiskey like better. You know what, the fact that you like whiskey just instantly makes you 12 times more pretentious than anyone else in the room. <laughs> that I is like not true, I didn't actually... No, I was no, 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 no. I was I not... I hate this. I was in English for exactly a semester. You cannot say I'm the most pretentious person in the room just because I like whiskey. I majored in You can say I'm the most pretentious person in the room because I insist on calling it bourbon. I fucking hate you. I'm the most pretentious person in the room by default because not only did I major in English, but I graduated with a major in English. And I'm considering going back someday. I'm a dropout. Explicitly so that you can write that thesis on Shelley Jones. Yeah, yeah, Shirley Jackson. Someday that's going to be a feature. Shelley Jones was a teacher at my old school, I'm sorry. No problem. (laughs) Yeah, how many drinks have you had now, darling? All right, well, I like typewriters. Uh, the yeah. typewriter that I have right now is a 1950 Smith Corona Silent. Um, it which is, is not silent. It is not silent, <laughs> but it is quieter than other typewriters of the time period okay. because it has extra soundproofing bat- batting on the inside of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's from the 50s. It's 1950, exactly. I thought you told me this one was from the 60s. No, I placed it... St- time period. I probably told you that while I was, like, trying to place its time period, mm-hmm. but I went on the typewriter b- database and looked at the serial numbers and all of the ones before it are from ni- early 1950, mm-hmm. and all of the ones after it are from late 1950, so I actually can place this to about June in oh, terms wow. of production time. That's cool as hell, my dude. Um, <laughs> and that's that's when I assume, because it's it's in the middle of the serial numbers for 1950. <laughs> But they were probably really all produced at about the same time of year. Mm -hmm. Um, But my Smith Corona has extra soundproofing foam placed on the inside of the cast iron body Mm -hmm. to try and dampen some of the sound. It's still quite loud uh, because typewriters be like that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But um, uh, that is why it was called the Silent. There was also one around the same period of time called the Sterling that didn't have that soundproof battening. Um, but it had some of the same structure of it. So if I wanted to get spare parts, I could buy a Sterling for quite a bit cheaper, I think, because they were cheaper originally. Huh. Um, the the thing that does the ink on it, mm-hmm. wait, can you still buy those? Or do you have yes. to, like, what's the deal with those? Um, so originally, the way that, that you would get new ribbons for your typewriter, because uh, typewriter ribbons, um, they're kind of like toner. 
in that uh, instead of going on in a liquid form like ink does when you put it through an inkjet printer, mm -hmm. uh, printer ribbons, uh, typewriter ribbons have powdered ink on them. And so when the hammer comes through and strikes the ribbon onto the paper, it leaves an impression of that powder ground into the paper. Yeah. Um, and you can still buy ribbons. Originally, uh, you would look in the owner's manual, look at the back, and it would say who you had to send a letter to or phone call <laughs> in order to buy a new ribbon. That's great. Obviously, most of those companies do something else now or don't exist. For example, <laughs> Smith Corona now does thermal rolls for things like receipt machines. I uh -huh. think Smith Corona did typewriters up until as late as the ninth, though. I think so. Up until the, the late 90s. Uh, 90s, early 2000s, because I got a one owner from new typewriter when I was in like fourth or fifth grade. Really? It's in the closet that. at our parents' house above my bedroom. Holy shit. I mean,. Given that mine is from 1950, a lot of people who were alive in 1950 may still have typewriters. That they just kept around. My mom had a royal up until the late 90s mm -hmm. that she didn't get rid of until mm -hmm. she ran out of ribbon and said, "Well, I'm not going to ever find anywhere to buy new ribbon for this." Yeah, mm -hmm. but like, <laughs> I mean, they really still sad. work though. Like yours is fucking old and it's sturdy as hell. Yeah, yours. But if is I didn't like, have anywhere to buy ribbon, yours is yeah, aesthetic sure. as shit. Yours is I so know. beautiful. The typewriter that I have looks like. A stereotypical computer keyboard from the nineties. Oh, like it looks like that keyboard like that you that. have right there. It's probably <laughs> it's probably a little bit like the first one that I had. I I had bought my typewriters in a sequence of two. I bought the cheapest one at the antique shop first. It was a Buddy L, which was one of the uh, quote toy typewriters that was released in the seventies. Yeah, it was a seventy four. And it was an entirely plastic construction, so every piece of it had worn down to the point where there were uh, huge tolerance wiggles and mm -hmm. it didn't type straight. And uh, there was a lot of noise to it that couldn't be fixed by tightening things. It also typed in all caps. It did type in all caps, <laughs> and the spacing was a lot wider than the one I have now. Mm -hmm. And it You didn't... sent me a picture of some fanfic that you wrote in that, and I was like, hey, why the hell is this all in caps? <laughs> because that's You're all just it's real got. excited about fanfic? <laughs> no, that's all it's got. Uh, <laughs> but it was, it was meant to be a really light, really cheap typewriter to pr mass produce. Mm -hmm. Sears made them for a while. Um, and then after I realized that I really liked typing on a typewriter and I was exactly that kind of asshole, um, <laughs> but I realized this one wasn't going to hold up for me for long enough, I went back to the antique shop and traded it in for the more expensive Smith Corona all-metal construction typewriter that they had in stock. And uh, it is all metal. The body of it is cast iron. Is it super heavy, then? It's super heavy. Yeah. It's like 20 pounds. I love it. Is that the thing that's under my bed that I keep smacking my hand into every time I lie on the floor to stretch? Yeah, probably. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry. That's in a case. <clears throat> it's, it's got a protective box. It came with one. Okay. It locks down into its box, too. you got to press a lever to get it out of the box. So it stays real hard in place. <laughs> Yeah, last weekend you typed at that typewriter for probably like three or four hours. Yeah. Just like in the uh, main living space of our apartment. And I, the entire time, was like, that's so nice. I'm glad you like it. It's such a good <laughs> that sound. That means I can use it. That's, actu <laughs> that's actually a pretty good segue, though, Mary. Uh, <laughs> mm. um, I was working on Sunday on 
the second draft of a piece I'm working on. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it's fan fiction. It is fan fiction. <laughs> Fuck you. I'm not. I'm fan not fan making fun. Good. Writing fan fiction on a typewriter is like the wholesome, most essential fan fiction experience, in my opinion. Like reading the stuff that you've written in in your binder. <laughs> Like typed out on a typewriter felt so pure and good to me. Okay, honestly, I enjoyed it the very most much. Goddamn pretentious. Okay, thing it's so I've, good. I've but there's a way in which that feels that Charlie's right. That does feel very essential to the fanfiction experience. To me, I mean, obviously, I didn't live through this time period, but like fandom, like as a cultural thing, like it started, started out, out with with people with, yeah. with like housewives in the 70s passing stuff they typed on their typewriters about Kirk and Spock around to each other when it was still illegal to be homosexual in most states I bet there were zines Oh yeah um, there were so yeah, many Oh my gosh So yeah. another cool thing about typewriters uh, there were there's a type of foil that you can run through the typewriter that when you type on it, it'll punch straight through the paper, and then you'll have a reusable stencil that'll do like five copies, Ooh. and you can do like ink prints over those oh, that's until so they good. rip. And when they rip, you can no longer do the transfers because there's a big rip on it. Um, but that is how a lot of zines were made was by foil copy. That's I don't sick remember as hell. the actual term for it, but that's what you would do is punch pieces through yeah. a piece of paper I love and this. use it as a stencil. I love this and so much. Okay, I not... bet there were McSpurk zines that okay. were released there were, there in were, the 70s. There were Spurk zines in the 70s. There absolutely were. Yeah. Do you know Spock Slash on Tumblr? No, fuck no. Okay, well, she was um, a real old lady who joined Tumblr about six months ago and quickly got extremely popular because she was one of the people who lived through that. Not only lived through that, she kind of helped start that culture. And she died, like, about two weeks ago, actually. Rest but, in peace. Yeah. But, a mother of our nation. <laughs> honestly, yeah. yeah. Like, a lot of her stuff, her stuff's still going around. I still see it all the time. Because I follow Yeah, wasn't she working on an archive of, like, uh, what is it? Like, uh, scanning physical copies of, like, Kirk Spock stuff, like, art, old writing, things um, like that was, that still existed. She was trying to get in touch with people who ran such archives because she has boxes upon boxes of that stuff in her home. Oh, my God. That she wrote in the 70s and that her friends wrote in the 70s. Yeah, that is really she the knew, quintessential fandom experience. She knew Leslie Fish personally, Charlie. Oh, my Leslie God. Leslie Fish, who wrote Band from Argo. Oh, my God. She knew Leslie Fish. You know, it's, like, it's occurring to me that... I probably could qualify original series Star Trek as a special interest for me, given how into it I was for, like, probably a year and a half. Yeah. Fandom history is kind of a special interest of mine. Yeah. A minor one. I hope she had a will, and that it mentioned that stuff. Oh, yeah. It did. I think it... it One of her kids posted on Tumblr after she died that she had mentioned a lot of that stuff. Yeah, Yeah, and, like, she had made a post at one point talking about how Spock was, like the most central character, piece of fiction, anything to her self-concept in her whole life. Like, she said that she went back to college because of Spock. And, like, she did this because of Spock. And she uh, attributed, like, her her core of her personality to Spock as a character. It does like, matter. Yeah. It's very good. <laughs> yeah. So, fiction like, matters she and fan absolutely... Culture is good had a will for that kind of stuff. Good, excellent. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know what her name is. 
She's just Spock slash on Tumblr. And you said there's boxes and boxes she had of that? Yeah, that's what that she had said. All would have been either typed or handwritten. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a dream. Wow. Okay, but also handwritten fanfiction is such a like wholesome thing. Remember when you used to keep journals that you wrote fanfic in? I have in? a backlog of journals. I have, I think, 12 or 13 little of those. That's what you got to do with those journals. If you're a person who collects journals and never writes anything in them, Fan fiction. Put fan fiction in them. I have 13, 12 or 13 journals. I went through them the other day. The first one I started writing in the first one in July of 2009. Wow. So, like, and I'm, I still write stuff in them today. And usually, it's usually drabbles that I write before bed that I would be too embarrassed to post online because they're so self-indulgent. <laughs> but back That's in valid. the day, the purpose of them was that our parents spied on our internet history so it wasn't really safe for me to post like yeah <laughs> anything too like graphic or like yeah online yeah. so i couldn't do that so I, I just if i recall journals correctly and journals of, yeah of holmes and watson smut oh is that what it was okay the, what <laughs> i was warehouse about to say 13. was yeah most of the stuff that you like shared with me was either warehouse 13 or buffy and that yeah. stuff was like, had, pretty good for I a 12-year-old. I was 14 at the time. Oh, God. <laughs> I had an entire journal. It was, like, one of those really beautiful journals with, like, the gilded edges and stuff. And um, canonically, in the universe of Buffy, all of the Watchers are required to keep a journal of, like, their activities and, like, stuff they experience and, like, demons they encounter. Did you so, write a POV thing? Yeah, I had... No, I had this this journal filled out as Giles Watcher's journal. And so it was a point of view fake. Yeah. That's what I was going for. Yeah. That's great. I would just like have a spiral bound notebook of something and my mom would ask, well, what's that? And I'd say, it's a story I'm working on. She'd ask, want to tell me about it? And I'd tell her some vague stuff and she'd yeah. leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. And she would never have looked through that. I remember... Wait, how old were you when you started writing fanfic? Fanfic specifically? Um... Yeah. <laughs> I started writing stories when I was really little. I didn't really have a concept of what fanfic was until, like... But did you write fanfic before you had a concept of fanfic? I tried once, and only once, and it was Kingdom Hearts, and I got a page in. I wrote I... Warrior Cats fanfic. I, I didn't um... <laughs> write any other fanfic until I was, like, 16. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, my first introduction to the concept of fanfic was my friend Kayla, who wrote... Uh, WWE wrestling fanfic, like ship fic. It was very weird. Yeah, that was my introduction <laughs> to fanfic as well. But like, <laughs> but I had been writing Warrior Cats fanfic for like a year and a half before that. It's just that I didn't share it with anyone except my friend Jace, with whom I did Warrior Cats role play. Excellent. <laughs> it's so wholesome. It honestly. is. Like, I'm so glad we're still friends. <laughs> you two need to talk about Warrior Cats as well. I don't remember episode. any shit about Warrior Cats. It was a special interest for me, but my teenage years were so traumatic that I genuinely don't remember anything about it. That's so sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, Not uh, to be depressing. Mary, but... you mentioned you mentioned writing fanfic in journals yeah. because your parents wouldn't look at it. And I yeah. just, I can't really write by hand mm -hmm. much anymore. Mm -hmm. it, it hurts my oh, hand no, a lot the way either. that I hold a pen. I Same. hate my handwriting. Yeah. Like, literally, if anyone else looked at my most recent journal that I have, which spans from 2015 to now, it would probably look like gibberish. So, yeah, like, like... Same. 
And the <laughs> issue I have is like I would stop journal keeping, even even my actual journal, which I mm-hmm. actively want to keep up, yeah. because my hand would hurt by the time I got through oh, an entry. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's because I have arthritis or anything like that runs in my family, yeah. but I don't think I'm developing it at, at this age. I wonder. But it's like I I, I have bad hand posture. Yeah. And yeah. I, I got a typewriter and I was like, oh, my hands don't hurt after typing like yeah. bar pages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, that's extremely you know, good. That's a plus. Yeah, the typewriter was a good purchase choice on your decision. It was a good purchase. Yeah, nice. And also, it smells like antique store. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that, and like, I have I kind of mixed it. feelings about that because, like, sometimes I love that smell, but other times I'm like, mm, it's too much, you know? You can't smell it too much until you get real close, though. That's fair. <laughs> Time for another another edition of the uh, poems that Poetry slap that with Mary. Poetry that slaps. This is Nuremberg by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, yes. and it's too long to read the whole thing. I love this one bookmarked for six months. I sent you this one because I so love good. this poem. I did this for forensics my senior year. In the valley of the Pegnitz, where across broad meadow lands rise the blue Franconian mountains, Nuremberg the ancient stands, quaint old town of toil and traffic. Quaint old town of art and song. Memories haunt thy pointed gables like the rooks that round them throng. Memories of the Middle Ages when the emperors, rough and bold, had their dwelling in thy castle, time-defying, centuries old. And thy brave and thrifty burghers boasted in their uncouth rhyme that their great imperial city stretched its hands through every clime. And I'm going to scroll down to the bottom because I like the... But his house is now an alehouse with a nicely sanded floor and a garland in the window and his face above the door. Painted by some humble artist as an Adam Pushman song, as the old man, gray and dove-like, with his great beard, night, white and long. Vanished is the ancient splendor, and before my dreamy eye wave these mingled shapes and figures like a faded tapestry. Not thy counsels, not thy kaisers win for thee the world's regard, but thy painter, Albrecht Dürer, and Hans Sachs, thy cobbler bard. Thus, O Nuremberg, a wanderer from a region far away, as he paced thy streets and courtyards, sang and thought his careless lay, gathered from the pavement's crevice as a floweret of the soil, the nobility of labor, the long pedigree of toil. And, like, the point of the poem is that, like, the reason that the city of Nuremberg is important culturally isn't any of the, like, uh, stuff that's produced there in the speaker's like contemporary day it's the legacy of art left by the famous people who used to live there Albrecht Dürer who was uh, both an artist and a scientist and then um Hans Sachs and I don't know anything about him yeah I like Albrecht (laughs) Dürer I've seen like I think wood carvings from him yeah he did wood carvings yeah they are very good and very detailed I didn't actually know that he was a scientist I didn't know anything about him except that he was the artist mentioned in this poem until Mm. I saw wood carvings that he had done about science stuff, and I can't remember what the science stuff was, but at an exhibit at the British Library when I went on that trip a couple of summers ago. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit, Abradur new stuff? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, the reason that I knew his stuff was he did a series of, like, wood carving illustrations that were used to print, like, they were, I think they were used as, like, the negatives to print illustrations into, um, some series of books. I don't remember what the series were, but there were a whole bunch of them that I saw at one point. And, like, I don't know, I thought that was very neat. 
back in ye olden days when like obviously printers weren't a thing so you had to like make a a, a negative blank to like do do the print of an image you to go in a book. You know who else did wood carvings that I really like? Yeah. Gustave Doré. Have either of you read Dante's Inferno at any point? No. Doré did the wood carvings for Dante's Inferno, and I love them. Oh, I may have <laughs> like, seen the wood carvings. Yeah, you probably have. They're pretty famous. I, I'll glance through the pictures of yeah. a long story without reading the story. Yeah. I am I am cut out for picture books. <laughs> I also am cut out for three hundred word novels, but not for like seven thousand word uh, stories about what hell is. Yeah, like I read the Inferno in a class that was on. I don't even remember what the like overarching theme of the class was, but it might have just been epic poems because we also did the Iliad and the Odyssey in that class. Oh, Dante's Inferno is an epic, isn't it? Yeah, it's originally Holy an Italian. Shit, dude. That, I you're it right. Was an epic. I thought it was just like a list of places. Yeah. So, um, the Aeneid is fan fiction of the Odyssey, mm. and um, Dante's Inferno is fan fiction of the Bible and the Aeneid. Virgil, who wrote the Aeneid, is or was the character in the Aeneid? I can't remember. Did Virgil, Virgil write was the, Aeneid? the author of the Aeneid. I found this out like two days ago. That's Virgil, who wrote the Aeneid, he was Latin. Is, is yeah. um, Dante's guide through hell in the story? Oh, okay. He leads him through hell and shows him all the circles of hell and like knows all the shit before the first circle of hell. Outside of that is a place. And I, I can't remember what the fuck it's called. Isn't that like purgatory? No, purgatory didn't really exist as a concept at this point in history. Okay, but, I don't um, know any shit about religious history. So what? I can't remember what the area was called, but it wasn't like hell hell. It was outside the gates of hell. And it was the place where like virtuous pagans were sent. So like people who were good people but had lived during a time before Catholicism existed and therefore couldn't be Catholic. So they were condemned to this outer region forever and Homer lived there. And like, uh, there, I just remember reading this that. This is just like, like, this This is fan fiction that's just like a crossover of everything and uh, everyone shows yeah, up at some it's, point. It's, it's, I mean, it's a morality play fan fiction. That's what it is. Good lord. I love, yeah. I love the fact that Dante's Inferno is... Bible and also history fanfic. Fanfic has is. always existed, and I, because I have had several drinks, I'm going to take the step to say that every work ever has been a work of fanfiction or a derivative work of some sort. Mm, contentious! I like it! <laughs> That's my hot take of the night. This went off the grill. I gotta go to the bathroom. <laughs> welcome, when, welcome to Spin, where we're all drunk and talking about fanfiction. So. Oh my god, I had the weirdest realization at work the other day. I realized that, like, a lot of the time when I think that I've zoned out or that I've stopped paying attention, what's actually happened is that it's taken me so long to translate what someone said into the way I think about it that I'm still like five sentences behind. Yeah, that happens and it was to just me like, a lot. I have never thought about this before and it applies <laughs> to me so strongly. Yeah. It was like a <laughs> fucking revelation for me. I was like, I'm lost because I had to turn 
what he said into the way I do my job this before I could move on. Yeah. So hard to the way I've heard ADHD described too. Yeah. Because uh, the, it's not that our processing speed, that our idea connections happen so much faster and at a hyper rate. It's that they pro- we process so much slower that by the time we connect ideas, they seem completely irrelevant. Mm-hmm. 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 I understand a thing about myself that I didn't. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like That's so, so real. Good. Yeah. Oh, my God. I don't know if I would call it a special interest, but maybe a, 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 an interest or a hyperfixation of mine is, like, um, understanding the way that, like, communication works and the way communication differs and the way processing differs for people who are neurodivergent. Two of my coworkers were out and I was filling in for both of them basically at work, um, which means I was answering the phone way more than I usually do. Um, and one of the things that uh, I noticed and like tried to adapt to, I guess, was the fact that like when I need to uh, like I need to have a script before I can uh, respond to something that someone is saying or if I pick up the phone I have to have a script for like what I'm planning to say when I call someone or like if I'm gonna leave a message for someone if I'm calling them about an appointment or something I have to like have the script for what I'm going to say before I pick up the phone and dial the number Neurotypical people use scripts on the phone too. Everyone else in my office says the exact same thing every time they answer the phone. Yeah. And like goes through the same process with the same, with goes through the exact same process with different people 50 times a day. And it's just like so reassuring to me to know that like once I have all the information that I like, once I know all these products that I'm going to be trying to sell, Mm -hmm. then like I'll be able to do that because I did it for nine months when I worked at the hotel. Mm I felt like when I pick up the phone to answer someone, I have to, like, do all the things on the fly and not to do the script thing. So when someone actually picks up and I'm like, hello, Uh, this is Charlie uh, from uh. such and such office, (laughs) and they're like, hello, and I'm like, oh, I thought I was going to get an answering machine. Sorry. That's the worst. So then you, so then I I panic, I hang up, I call back, and I wait for the answering machine. No, 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 no. I, I did not at any point hang up. I tried my very best not to do. That. <laughs> Relatable autism feels, TM. Yeah, yeah it is. We're at 53 minutes. Charlie, do you want to talk about color theory a little bit? Oh my bit? god, I forgot what all my examples were. Do you want to just keep talking about relatable autism? Feels? Do you want to keep... do another poem that's last? <laughs> I have two more pulled up. <laughs> One more segment of poetry that's last. Oh, but I have that's two right. more. I have two oh more poems. Oh my god. Okay, my god. the other one I have, I actually wanted to read at the end of... Um, the episode we did with Hedgie, but I couldn't get it pulled up on my computer. I was is this too... the Garden of Proserpine? Yes, I was too drunk to get it pulled up on my computer. Oh, boy. But here it is. It's the Garden of Proserpine by Algernon Charles Swinburne. But, yeah, so um, this is about um, Proserpine, who... Proserpine? Proserpine. Proserpine is the way the rhyme works in this poem, so that's how I'm going to say it. It's the Roman version Persephone. of the name Persephone. Mm-hmm. This is the bit describing Persephone. Pale, beyond porch and portal... Crowned with calm leaves she stands, who gathers all things mortal with cold, immortal hands. Her languid lips are sweeter than loves who fear to greet her, to men that mix and meet her for many times and lands. 
She waits for each and other, she waits for all men born, forgets the earth her mother, the life of fruits and corn, and spring and seed and swallow take wing for her and follow, where summer songs ring hollow and flowers are put to scorn. Dang. Yeah, that poem slaps. <laughs> I told you! <laughs> Not in the way that, like, you could rap it, but in the way that, like, it slaps my soul. It gives you soul. fucking chills! Like, who gathers all things mortal with cold, immortal hands? Yeah, that's some good shit, dude. <sighs> that's, like, almost as good. Okay, that paragraph, that stanza, and that one stanza from the middle of... The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which I'm going to have to pull up on my Instagram. Hey, boy. Okay, you know The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner? You yeah. know that poem that's a really long poem? Yeah. Do you know how long that takes to read out loud? How 45 long? minutes. I did it once for a video. It takes 45 <laughs> minutes to read that whole poem. Oh, that section, who gathers all things mortal with cold and mortal hands, and this line of, um that I'm about to read of The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner are like goth aesthetic goals for me. Are those her ribs through which the sun did peer as through a grate? And is that woman all her crew? Is that a death? And are there two? Is death that woman's mate? Her lips were red, her looks were free, her locks were yellow as gold. Her skin was white as leprosy, the nightmare life in death was she, who thicks man's blood with cold. Yeah, that's fucking that's really good. good. I love The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Yeah. I don't usually love poetry, but I love The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Water, water everywhere, and every board did shrink. Water, water everywhere, and nor any drop to drink. To drink. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> it's all seawater? Yeah, because, yeah. Yeah, it's about a dude who shoots a bird and gets his ship cursed, and then everybody on <laughs> the ship dies. That sounds like an Edgar Allan What? It's, it's, who's it by? It's not Poe. Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And I want to talk about films. (laughs) Oh! I like Coleridge films. Are you going to talk about Wes Anderson? I'm going to talk about Pacific Rim. Oh, hell yeah. Boy. Blue and teal and orange. Teal and orange. I mean, pretty much, yeah. Um, So my favorite color combinations are generally either complementary color combinations or uh, color triads. So, if you look at the color wheel, you know it's got the rainbow going around. So, complementary colors are the two that are like directly across from each other, right? So, blue and then orange, or like purple and yellow, or red and green. And then, like, if you migrate slightly to one side or the other on the wheel, then the other one slightly moves too. So, then you've got like, you know, the sort of like bluish, purplish blues. And then, in order to compensate for that, you've got more of, like, yellowish oranges. And that's the sort of color palette that Pacific Rim has, and I like that a lot. Um, But I was going... I had, like, some specific examples pulled up on my computer recently, but I don't want to go and dig through them. Um, Pacific Rim does, like... Um, does that thing where colors do the symbolism TM. So, like, the inside of the Shatter Dome is all, like, warmer, like, orangey tones. And then, like, all of the interactions with the kaijus tend to have, like, that bluish light to them. Especially since, like, some of the kaijus have that bioluminescence shit going on. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And then the, like, there's one prominent use of the color red. Like, red is not used... Is it Hannibal Chow? Oh, is it? 
I don't. His his scenes are more like orangey. Like all of the, you know, all of the buildings that he's in. You're talking about Mako's shoe. Yeah, I'm talking about the scene with Mako's shoe. Um, Yeah, most of the color palette of that movie is various shades of oranges and blues. Um, And then there's like that one scene that's the flashback to Mako's childhood when her parents died in that kaiju attack. And, um, like, the whole thing is super washed out. Like, the rest of the movie is... Almost every scene in Pacific Rim is pretty, like, saturated and brightly colored. Like, even in the control room, like, for where... In the Shatter Dome, like, the control room looks like it would be, like, pretty sterile, like, gray kind of stuff. But, like, the lights from the screens and stuff and the stuff that people are wearing is, like, that adds color to it and shit. But... Like, that entire scene, that entire flashback scene is, like, very washed out. And then the one splash of color is Mako in her blue jacket with her one missing red shoe. And it's just like, damn, wow, using color to your advantage there. Nice nice one, Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> ten out of yeah. ten. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like uh, the quote... Nice one, Guillermo del Toro, 10 out of 10. <laughs> Just sounds like his entire film career. So the reason that I am a huge fan of that like blue and orange color palette is because most of the fiction that I like tends to have that blue and orange color palette. So the two big examples are Pacific Rim mm-hmm. and Quantum Break. <laughs> I never realized that. It does. Okay, it does. so um, one of the things that... Uh, that Quantum Break does in order to like differentiate between um, different like modes of play, I guess, um, is like when you're walking around and interacting with things in normal time, like colors are, are normal and everything is saturated normally. Mm-hmm. But when you enter a stutter when time is frozen, um, everything suddenly goes very washed out and a filter goes over everything that makes it just slightly tinged like this tealish blue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the mm-hmm. only other color that's present in like in any Amaya. kind of <laughs> Amaya's is messing around with shit over in the corner and distracting me. Anyway. <laughs> um, what was I saying? Oh yeah, the only other color that is visible in your interactions with frozen stopped time in the stutters is this sort of the like uh, slightly orangey yellow color that is used in all of the branding for Monarch, which is you know mm-hmm. the the big bad, the big bad evil corporation in Quantum Break. Um, so like the the you know tealy blue and orangey yellow color palette is also used extensively in that as well and I think to really good effect because like I enjoy limited color palette things like the reason that I think that one scene in Pacific Rim with where everything's washed out and the only color is Mako's shoe like that works really well because using only one color to like signify some sort of like emotional thing or like have some kind of resonance like that works really really well and I like how that's used in Quantum Break as well with like everything is washed out and sort of bluish and the only color that really stands out to you is like that orangey yellow of Monarch that's like I'm not really sure what emotion it puts across but it really does make you feel like weird and sort of alien and isolated in that like frozen time world and it's 
so good. And I just, I love the way color theory is used to that kind of effect in, like, games and movies and stuff. My favorite... Hellboy! I love Hellboy. My favorite Del Toro contrast shot that I have ever seen is from Hellboy 2, when they're chasing down, they're trying to get that little bean pod back before it gets into water mm-hmm. and sprouts into, and then it does. It sprouts into this giant monster, and they're all like, shoot it, shoot it in the head. And he like doesn't want to because it's the last of its kind, and he's the last of his kind, and he feels like this empathy with it. And then he does shoot it anyway, and it just explodes. And like this downtown, like kind of dingy back street in... Like, it's, like, 1 o'clock in the morning in, like, Brooklyn, New York, in this dingy street, and everything's dark, and it's, like, black and dirty, and then this green just bursts everywhere, and it's, like... Yeah, that's it's pretty good. It's my favorite shot in any Del Toro movie. <laughs> oh, God damn it. Interstellar is the other one that I wanted to talk about for color theory. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's go hear on, it. Go on. It's good. <laughs> that's all I got. Literally, I don't remember <laughs> any, I don't remember any colors from that movie except oh my the God. gold of the Tesseract That's the, the point. Uh, that's the point. Oh, what they but... do, what no, they ahead. do, the thing that they do is that out in space, there's like no color. Like mm-hmm. back on Earth, most of the color that you get is like the warm yellows of the fields and mm-hmm. shit. Mm-hmm. And then like, really, the only things that they do color-wise are like the yellows with that. And yeah. then when you get to the black hole and like the reflections around it and the tesseract at the end you get it's the all yellow again tied back in again yeah cause he wants to go home it's lovely I love Interstellar <sighs> me so too much. I haven't rewatched that movie in so long we should watch that I sometime. would die for Interstellar it's the best movie ever made in my personal opinion Amaya wants to say something <laughs> you look like you're in pain <laughs> when you cut back to the earth in Interstellar everything is dust it's grays and it's browns yeah. exclusively grays Browns, a little bit of blues. Yeah, green sometimes. The, cool, the green, but then a even, little bit of the green, but, but not then, much yeah, of the greens like, and the blues. It's of, all browns. A lot of the time, the green is like kind of drabbed out. Like. And here's the thing: there is hardly any contrast in those scenes. There's hardly any light to dark contrast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so when you, the main difference. The main difference isn't you, so much yeah. color as it is contrast. Yes, out in space, yes. they use all like so much contrast. Mm-hmm. Back in the scenes on Earth. It's lower contrast. It's mostly like neutral tones, yellows, browns, and, grays. And, that and the is... planets they visit all follow that same pattern. The one planet is all ice and the other planet's all water, so it's all the same color. Yeah. It's all but the it's same very high shape. contrast. Yeah, Interstellar <laughs> is topography. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. cinnamon <laughs> topography. Yeah, Interstellar is the most visually stunning and most emotionally fil- moving film that I've ever seen in my whole life. Like, not it's to be good. pretentious, but this is a pretentious episode, and I will call it a film. Yes. <laughs> Fuck you. It's very good. Interstellar is yeah, very good. Yeah, it's extremely good. I would die for Interstellar. But yeah, there's a lot of things, cinematography-wise and color and contrast-wise, that that movie does right. Actually, it does basically everything right, so yeah. You're scared of black holes, too, I am. You? I am. Okay, listen. I wasn't scared of black holes before seeing Interstellar, really? actually. That's hilarious. Um, Interstellar made me afraid of the concept of time. So... That's, <laughs> That's hilarious fair. to me. Because the reason, the reason I love Interstellar as much as I do is because I've always had a really strong fascination and interest in time dilation and black holes and time travel 
in terms of space and like that when that movie was announced and I learned that was what that was going to be about, I was like, I already would die for this movie and it isn't even out yet. Yeah. So when I saw it and it lived up to and then exceeded my expectations, I was like, holy shit. This okay, is another one okay. of them writing things. Okay, huh? okay, okay. When that movie first came out, everyone I knew who saw it, who wasn't me and who wasn't my boyfriend at the time, complained that the pacing was bad because... The first, they were like, you could have cut out that first half hour on Earth. And I'm like, no, you couldn't have. You You could not. They had to take that first half hour to make us care about Earth. Exactly. Because people do not inherently care about Earth because it's where we live when we look at it in a fictional context. If we care about Earth because it's where we live in a real context, it's because we live on it. If it's in a fictional context, we don't live there. Yeah. So we have to care about it as a place where the characters live. So they had to take that half hour to emphasize how the main character cares about his fucking kids. Yeah. <laughs> and how he wants to help them because that's his entire yeah. motive for going. That's everyone, his reason every, for being. Yeah, everyone who said that the first half hour of Interstellar was extraneous missed the entire fucking point of the movie. They, <laughs> yep, absolutely did because that, it's a movie about family. I'm gonna, we're gonna stop, we're gonna do Are our outro. Are we gonna outro. do one more Yeah, we're gonna, stop being, no, sh- we're gonna we're stop being, we're gonna emo stop being emo about storytelling. Do our outro then I'm gonna read a poem as like the outro that I'm gonna have music playing over it so like my voice fades out and rise because <laughs> you like to be pretentious I do I love this is this is the pretentious episode. episode let's just title it that honestly, the pretentious episode honestly I was kind of hoping that whatever the last thing we talked about would sag into this last poem I have a little bit better but it hmm. doesn't at all what because poem is the it? last poem I have is the laboratory by Robert Browning. And I'm oh, going to read yeah. the entire thing, but first we're going to say goodbye. Okay, so I've been Mary. I've been uh, Charlie. I've been Amias. <laughs> this has been Spin, the Drunk Special Interest Podcast. I'm not even that drunk. This sucks. I should have drank more. Yeah, I drank two large margaritas, I'm... but like I start, I finished the last one as we started this episode, so I'm like not drunk Yeah, Amias is the tired. only one who's <laughs> appropriately <laughs> drunk. drunk. <laughs> God damn it, Amias. <laughs> Oh, well, sometimes it works like that. I'm a little less drunk than when we started, actually. Okay, so let me read you this poem, which is about a guy going to a chemist to acquire poison to murder his cheating wife. Holy shit. (laughs) The laboratory. Now that I, tying thy glass mask tightly, may gaze through these faint smokes curling whitely, as thou pliest thy trade in this devil's smithy, which is the poison to poison her, prithee? He is with her, and they know that I know where they are, what they do. They believe my tears flow while they laugh, laugh at me, at me fled to the drear, empty church to pray God in. For them I am here. Grind away, moisten, and mash up thy paste. Pound at thy powder. I am not in haste. Better sit thus than observe thy strange face than go where men will beat me and dare.
guys, it's Mary. Thanks for listening to this new episode. Sorry it's taken us a literal month to get it out to you. I think we recorded this in the middle of May. So that's about where we all are (laughs) with this project. Me and Amias are working full-time, five days a week, normal daytime shifts, and Charlie is working, I think, four days a week right now. But Anyway, the point is, all three of us are very busy people, and a lot of the time our um, energy that we devote towards fun stuff is better put towards uh, either other projects we want to work on, or just like chilling, watching Star Trek, that kind of stuff. So like, this podcast is probably not going to be going out every week anymore, But we will definitely keep you updated on Twitter uh, about when episodes will be released. So we recently recorded another episode with Rylan, who does our outro music, and Kuiper, who is Rylan's partner. Um, They came to visit us in (laughs) in the middle of nowhere where we live, and uh, they stay with us for a couple of days, and we, um, we went to local Pride together, and we recorded an episode. So that is going to go up either as a two-parter or as a really long one-part episode. I haven't decided yet because we have two and a half hours of material that we recorded with them. And I don't know how I'm going to cut that down yet because I haven't even started editing that. (laughs) Because after they left today, I realized, oh, you know what? I got to edit that episode we did literally a month ago and put that up first. So that's uh, that's about where I am. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening to the show. You can find us on iTunes as Spin Podcast. Maybe leave us a review if that's your thing. If not, that's cool. I know I don't really like iTunes format very much. So, like, the place we're hosting now, instead of SoundCloud, we're hosting on Anchor.fm. Uh, you can find us there at spin-podcast. Our music is done by Rylan underscore V on Twitter. Her latest work is on Bandcamp at aquagirl.bandcamp.com. That's aqua-girl.bandcamp.com. You should go check out her music. She played at our local Pride event when when she came to visit me and Charlie and Amias this past weekend, and it was great. If you want to talk about your special interest or hyperfixation on the show, you can visit us on Twitter at spin underscore podcast or Tumblr at spinpodcast.tumblr.com and just, like, message one of us uh, and we will talk about having you on the show. We'll set up a date. That will be fun. You can email us at spinpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, that's pretty much all I got. We will keep you updated on Twitter about what our posting schedule is going to be like, because honestly, heck if I know right now. (laughs) Uh, it's the end of Pride Month, so to everyone else who celebrated that, happy Pride! Uh, hope you had a great time. I definitely did. Talk to you later.